Okay. <clears throat> so, what is our new-ish series? Oh, it's like uh, America. Liberty, freedom. Yes. Through the eyes of... Of you being found at the James. Who? Nope. No, yeah, stop it. That's on Sunday. The people who founded it. Oh, the book of James. Yes, sorry. Yeah. We did look at James, yep. Winthrop, that guy. Okay. Is that his name? John? John Winthrop? Steve? Right? No, that's Stephen Langton. So we have Stephen Langton. And then John Winthrop. John Winthrop is the one. Was it an H or an N? Or just an N? H N. H N. So, tell me about Stephen Langton. Okay, that's the guy that he got put in the religious position, right? And right, and he was, yes. like took it really seriously. Where? where when? Um, in when with King John in the Magna Carta. Yes. Yes. Okay. Is it sixteen something? No, much Sorry. earlier. Oh, earlier than that. Okay, I don't know. Uh. I want to say it's like, it's pretty sure it's 1205, 1205 is the Magna Carta. Okay. Anyway, he got put in the, like, the religious position or whatever you want to call it. And didn't he, like, Okay, remember. what, religious, what does that mean? Somebody, somebody else. Is he the high priest? Nope. They don't have, well, okay, they do have, what'd you say? A bishop, yes, he's the bishop of. You got no one else. Nobody had read this, so, but it's a famous place. Uh, Canterbury. Oh yeah, I forgot. Still, nobody read that. Canterbury Tales. Huh. It's like important. Everything rhymes in it. Like Doctor Seuss. Uh, sort of, but it's old English, like very old English, like. <laughs> Before they standardized spelling. So, like, he spells oh. stuff weird, too. Old English is interesting to read. I just bought a book that was written, like, it's not Old English, but it's, like, a weird... Just old I love reading. Two S's is an F or something weird. What? Um, you... I think... Uh, maybe. Yeah. I think I read a book like that, and I had to figure it out, because I was like, these are not there, words. <laughs> there, in German, there is a... Um, there's a S that is like, it looks like two um, Fs, but it's not. It's an S, it's like a double S or something like that. Weird. Yeah, there's weird things like that, and the character looks weird. Okay, so what was important? What did he, what was his influence on the Magna Carta? Didn't he, did he, was he the one that made King John sign it? He like, didn't like, really make him sign it uh, because it was a bunch of barons that got together. Because they, they, like, they were like, we're, he, was very, he was very, um, about, he was very political in a good stop, way. You have to stop doing this to your people, right? Something about that? It was about, it was just, about individual freedoms. Okay, and yes. And like yes, like individual freedoms, that's good. Yes. 
but it wasn't perfect, right? What was wrong with the individual freedoms? Who had the freedom? Well, it was the people who owned land. Yeah. Yes, the only people. people. Right. But later on in the 1500s, they changed it to anybody, no matter what his condition, has, is, gets these rights that are put down in the Magna Carta. Okay, so it's a beginning, it's a start, and then we move ahead, jump ahead in time. So this was 1205, like Robin Hood, remember, time period to get an image in your head, to John Winthrop. What did you learn about him? Who is he? Where is he from? What time period? Did he start a town here in the United States? Yep. James, is it Jamestown? Nope. What was it? Jamestown is in Virginia and kind of failed. What is it called? Is it Boston now? Yes, it, it was Boston. Yep. But what was it called? What uh, was it? Pretty sure Boston. Really? Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> there may have been something else there before he came, but Boston is what, it may have been called, I don't know, I'm not sure, that wasn't the one I studied, so. Um, so, what time period do you remember? You talked about, well, somebody mentioned Jamestown. Yes, it is before the Revolutionary War. <laughs> Well, let's see. What happened in 1492? Well, they discovered America. Okay, so probably oh, so after 1492. Like early 15, like what else happens? What else is going on? Because this isn't... Usually there's other things in history that are all happening at the same time. No, that's like 200 years later. Thanksgiving... Pilgrims? Yeah, Plymouth. The Plymouth oh, yeah. Plantation, which is also in Massachusetts. Anybody know those years? Yeah, 1621, right? Yep, 1621. Uh, I think this one is... No, I did write this down, actually. This one is 16... I think this one's 1629. So, a lot of difference in time. 500... Or, Sorry, 400 years later, so a lot has changed, but what has not changed about the religious situation in England? Yes, and there is a standard uh, Church of England, right? There is. Um, you know, I'm not sure how much it's still tied up into the political sphere, but um, there is still a official, like, this is the official religion of England, which is the Anglican Church, which is Protestant. It is, they believe, um, all the same core beliefs they hold as pretty much all of Christians. They just are closer to the Catholic Church than many of the other denominations so are. So are they still like, are they right or are they not, are they wrong? Well, <laughs> it they are right in the fact that they believe that 
Jesus came and died for our sins and rose again and is coming again. Well, yeah, but like everybody, but that. when that's <laughs> not, not true. Everybody, no, everybody, as in like even like like Satan. You know what I mean? Yeah, like you can but believe in God, but the Jehovah's Witnesses don't, and the Mormons don't. I, I mean, I'm just saying, so, but they believe the important thing, right? They're saved. They're going to be in heaven. But there are things where you could probably have a disagreement on with them. Let's just put it that way. Okay. So, but they are not like they were before. This, this time period with, where John Winthrop leaves England is when... Every king that comes to the throne, the question is, is he Catholic or is he Protestant? And there are wars that are fought between, like civil wars fought in England over whether you are Protestant or you are Catholic. So in the time when John Winthrop comes over, um, everybody there, the official, the king is Catholic, Charles. But by the time... He gets here, and we get to the next guy today. It has changed, and it is James the first, and he is Protestant. So things change again. And there are two other things you talked about. We've talked about these actually a lot the past couple of years. There are two groups that don't like the Church of England that want oh, the, a different way of being a Christian. The pure and oh, the Puritans, Puritans and separatists. Yep, and separatist. What is each? It's pretty obvious, but which do each want to do with the Church of England? Puritans want to purify the Church of England. Right, they think you can get. They want to get it back on track, fix some things in it, and keep it. The separatists think it's a lost cause. Yes, exactly. And this happens throughout history, right? Martin Luther King, the I'm sorry. Martin Luther, the original, right? What did he do? Oh, what's it called? The, he nailed it on the door. Hang on. <laughs> There's 95 of them. Not thesis. Yes. Right? Yep. 95 theses or things that he had issue with that needed to be changed in the Catholic Church. But he actually did not want to separate from the Catholic Church. He wanted to fix it, and that was... I'd have to look up that date. But that was way long before John Winthrop. And eventually people that followed what he did, they separated and formed the Lutheran Church. And they are still around today. But you, if you were to go there, you'd probably think, this is really weird. This is foreign to me. Like, because they still have things that are similar or stemmed out of the Catholic Church. Then you go farther on down and you get Methodists that later come where they separate again from the Church of England and start a new thing with the Wesley brothers. And then you get the Baptists, which are actually um, the guy we're talking about today. He was kind of one of those early ones. So there's all these different ones that they're always trying to get back to what God intended originally. Okay. So, um, what was 
important about the Boston Charter? First of all, what's a charter? This, yes, means big. big. Yep. Okay. What, what, there was another Carta at the time. That's why this one was called the Magna Carta. If you remember what it involved. Levi talked more about the, like, the situation around it with trees. Oh, and they couldn't cut. They couldn't cut. It was, they right. couldn't cut down the trees. It was all about the king's forest and what yes. you could do in it. There was another was like, Carta. All these rules is like, okay, now what you can reach, you can Yes. So, what do you think a carta or a charter is? Like, what is an agreement? Yeah, it's an agreement. It's a, these are the laws that we are going to bind ourselves to. So, when they came to Boston, John Winthrop, remember, what did he do on the boat before they even got on shore? He wrote this up, right? And what was different about this charter from any other charter? Previously, because there were other ones like Jamestown, Plymouth. Yes. How? What was that? What was Boston going to be like? Yes, a, or it really a city on a hill. Oh yeah. And what's it going to do? <laughs> Jesus talked about it. He said, "You you should be like this." Nope. Yes, you are going to be like a light, a city on a hill that shines forth light. So that's the metaphor, but what does that mean you're going to be to everyone else? An example, yes. Okay, so and they built all their laws. They took them directly from, a lot of them directly from the Ten Commandments or other laws that God has given. And... What, what, what is that? You also talked about that number one most important rule or law to live your life by that Jesus said. Which is? Okay. And? Because... The somebody asked him. He said, "What are what are um, what are the most important commandments?" And Jesus said, "All the commandments in the Bible can be summed up into these two: love the yeah, love the Lord thy God with all your heart and all your mind." So those two things you can't do just one without the other one. It's impossible. You have to have both. So that's what their their basis was for their country. Pretty unique. It 
doesn't sound quite so unique now because we have a lot of new countries, but to them, there were no new countries. England was just always there. And it was a mishmash of all these people groups that always and influences, and they were just always trying to fix something that was damaged from whatever long ago. And they're coming and saying, we're going to start off on a good foot here. Okay, so tonight we are going to look at a new guy. She's purple. We're going to look at Roger Williams. And he is actually, he was friends, like acquaintances, with John Winthrop in Boston. But they didn't, they weren't both from there. He was also, and he is kind of a oddball, this guy. He is a little different. Um, not... Not in a bad way, he's just, he doesn't think like other people do. And he is also from England. And his story begins where he attends school at, um, at Pembroke. There's a school there that was called Pembroke. And then he later, after that, goes to study at Cambridge. Famous, right? Everybody knows Cambridge. And after that, he goes and he works under a guy named Sir Edward Cook. And this guy is the um, head of the Justice Department in the par in Parliament. So he is a huge part of that um, big moving force. Everybody remember what Parliament is? Isn't this like, it's like Congress? It's like, con yes. Yes, but a little quirkier. Yes, they have the, the House of Lords and the House of Commons. Which, like you guys said, the poor people and the rich people. I don't really understand how that translates today because they still have the House of Lords and House of Commons. And it's, a, it's kind of a wacky system. I've heard somebody from England describe it before, and I couldn't tell you how it works because it's wacky. And so in that time, though, it made sense to them because they still had royalty and common people. It wasn't totally... A level playing field yet and the, um, as I mentioned before now King Charles is gone and James the first is king what do you know about James the first you've all heard of him you all have something the King James Bible, which is also called the authorized version. Because what he did, and this is a great thing that he did, was he said, we need a Bible that everybody can agree on because you have the Catholics the Protestants, the Separatists, the Puritans, you have all these factions that are in disagreement. And he wanted to be, here's a big word that you may have heard thrown around before, ecumenical. Have you ever heard that word? No. You'll 
some people use it today, and it means that it's um, multiple versions of Christianity working together. So he wanted to unify everybody because he's the king, and he says, I don't want to have to deal with all these warring factions. Let's have a Bible that is the official Bible of England that everybody agrees on. And it's a little bit forceful, but he did bring in, um, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it was definitely more than 50 people who worked on translating the Bible into the everyday language of the time, which was, this is Shakespeare's time, so this is in the same kind of language of when you guys, if you read the original version of the Shakespeare plays in school. And... He, um, he wasn't perfect, so he did, that was his one great thing that everybody remembers him for. Um, everything wasn't good about him, and that's, that's like any person, any leader, there's always imperfections. And that's when this famous uh, thing happens. Everybody know Guy Fox. 5th of November, gunpowder plot, no, no, the movie V for Vendetta, no, oh, this is too far before your time, I guess, anyways, so there's, it's a famous plot where some um, Catholics, because James was Protestant, and they didn't like that he wasn't on their side, they tried to blow up Parliament when he was there. They put a bunch of gunpowder down in the basement of it and were going to blow up Parliament with while they were meeting and the king was there. They, they failed, but that's how, how tumultuous things in England are at this time. And during, and Roger Williams is there during all these things happening, working with Edward Cook in um, Parliament, and Edward Cook does an interesting thing where he pushes a new English common law. And all of our laws are based in English common law. Like, you know what habeas corpus is? What is it? It's like, it's like your right to your, like, your body, isn't it? Like something about... Uh, they detain you or something? Yes, that so you cannot be arrested without a. First of all, you have it's to like have a reason. Corpus, right? Yes, yeah. and second of all, you can't be held indefinitely without mm -hmm. a trial. There and there's a lot of other things that get wrapped up into it, but that is a English common law. Before it was ever like written down for a while, that was just what you were expected to have when you came to the king's court. And there are many other laws that get factored in. And so many of our laws, you look back in history and or even the Supreme Court, when they make decisions on things today, they will say, well, that has its root in English common law. So it's something we've always expected to have. And we're going to honor that. And Edward Cook introduces a new concept that becomes an English common law. And that one is, have you ever heard this before, that a man's home is his castle? I've heard it somewhere. Okay. 
What does that mean to you? Usually it's used like kind of in a funny way now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you own your house, you are in charge of your property, and that right can't be infringed on. He came up with this, and it kind of, when you use those terms that your, your home is your castle, who does that kind of put you on the same level as? The king, that everybody has this similar right, even if your castle is a mud hut, you still have, it's yours, it belongs to you. And out of this, we get things in our law, like the where oh that you have to have a warrant for an arrest or to search your house, right? Uh, no, that's the third one. I think you're. It might be the fourth or the yeah. And that was my next one, the Third Amendment, which you did know, right? It's a weird one. You might say. Right. Interesting that that's the third thing they picked, but with the times, everybody had suffered from that. And through a lot of history, that's just what the, if, if uh, France was fighting a war against England and the English were coming across the countryside and they set up battle lines in your backyard, the English or the French, if you were French, would just come and take your house and be like, we're living in here right now because it's close to our battle site. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen? <laughs> what if there was like, you know, something like even Hurricane Katrina and the National Guard showed up to help, but they said, we're living at your house and we're gonna eat your food while we're here. It's an important thing to have. So be glad that your home is your castle, okay? <laughs> um, and you, I would even say you kind of start to get out of there, and this isn't in our law, but it's in our, um, a, our Declaration of Independence, the, the right to the pursuit of happiness, right? That you get to choose what you want to do. All right, so Roger, all, I say all this to say that Roger takes um, his experiences from England and the times that he lived there and the things he witnessed and he brings all that knowledge with him when he comes to America. <clears throat> and he arrives in Boston in 1631 is when he arrives. So only two years after Boston has been a colony and when he shows up um, he, everybody, well, not, I don't know if everybody, but a lot of people knew who he was already because he had been in the government and he'd been around it and they all consider him such a godly guy that they say, Hey, why don't you be the, um, the, uh, minister of the church, the official church here in Boston which would be the Anglican church. They're running everything the way England did as far as the structure of their government. They've got different 
thing, their laws are based in God's laws, but they're still running it in a structure where they have an official church, the Church of England, the Protestant church. And John Winthrop is the one who offers him that position. And what do you think Roger does? What do you think, Riley? There's only two options. Take a guess. You think he takes it, goes along with it, or do you think he rejects it? He rejects it. Which, it's a pretty big position. And why do you think he said, I'm not going to be the minister of the Boston church? It's very interesting. No one? He says, I'm not going to take pay as a minister because I would be a mercenary then. It is. What is a mercenary though? It's an interesting way to describe it. Nope. It could be synonymous with it. It could be. But it's not both and. It relates to warfare. A mercenary is somebody who is paid to be a soldier to fight on your side. Not a volunteer or usually historically not from your country. They're fighting for your country, but they're from a totally different country and you paid them to come and fight for you. So why does he say if I were to become well, for a better term for us, the pastor of this church and get paid, I would be a mercenary. Um, he doesn't, but I think there is more to it than that. Okay, let's go to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. It's in the New Testament after Acts. And uh, verse 11 through 19 is what we're going to look at. Uh, chapter 9. Yep, verse 11. But, hold on, let me get there. Sorry, this one's not as clear where the chapters are. Okay, but I want, Abby, I want you to read from 
this version because this is in like plain English, sort of. Um, it was modern English at the time. From the, it was like modern English in like the fifties or something like that. Fifties? No. Oh, I was gonna say. Yeah, it's not, but it's not like the message. But are you all familiar with the message? Some of you are. Yeah, it's like today's. It's good, but it's not. Yeah, this is this is a lot better. This is really good for Paul's. So, I want you to re read because he even has paragraphs. Like he says, this starts with verse thirteen, but he doesn't tell you where the verses are because he's rearranged things. So I want you to read this paragraph and read. You can read all of this one. What? It's the. It's the same length as what we would read anyways. That or, is not. <laughs> verse 11? Well, I That's just like going to do 11 through words. 19, so. It's easier to read. No, it'll be, it'll take too much time to pass it. Okay, wait, all the way from here to here? Yeah. Or Sierra can do that second paragraph. Okay. <laughs> hey, this is Paul, and he's talking about um, receiving payment for being uh, a preacher. Okay. Are you ignorant of the fact that those who minister sacred things take part of the sacred food of the temple for their own use, and those who attend the altar have their share of what is placed on the altar? On the same principle, the Lord has ordered that those who proclaim the gospel should receive their livelihood from those who accept the gospel. But I have never used any of these privileges, nor am I writing now to suggest that I should be given them. Indeed, I would rather die than have anyone make this boast of mine in any way. My reward is to make the gospel free to all men, for I take no special pride in the fact that I preach the gospel. I feel compelled to do so. I should be utterly mis miserable if I failed to preach it. If I do this work because I choose to do so, then I am entitled to a reward. But if it is no choice of mine, but a sacred responsibility put upon me, what can I expect in the way of reward? This, that when I preach the gospel, I can make it absolutely free of charge. They need not claim what is my rightful due as a preacher. Okay, so, that's good. So, tell me what he's saying. It's still not super easy because it's Paul and he's a lawyer. But, anybody want to give me the gist of what he's saying? Like, if he accepted payment, like, if he's just, it's like his duty, and he doesn't want to, he doesn't necessarily want to willingly give his time. Plus, and then if not, he, it's like he's willingly giving his time and his effort, and he has a reward. Okay, is yes. It like accepting, like, it's okay. Like, well, you have you have the King James version but, in front of you. But is it like because you should spread the gospel anyways? Okay. So it's like so that's a part. I, I'm supposed to be doing this anyways. I'm not gonna take it like a job. Like it's a, should be an everyday thing. Yes, that's a part. He says this is a calling for me. This is 
this is, I am compelled is what he says that I have to do this no matter what that God has called me to it but he also mentions um, at the beginning of what Abby read what did he talk about that was interesting the verse 13. Talking about the temple. Sort of, yeah. So do you know what happened when you brought a offering of like an animal to sacrifice? Yes, the priests got part of it and you got part of it. So that's how the priests, I mean, they got, they grew other food and stuff, but that was one way of how the rest of the people supported the priest's family. So if you brought a grain offering, a portion of that grain went to the priests. If you brought a wine offering, a portion of that went to the priests. So it was payment for the work that they did for God. So Paul's saying at the beginning, it's not wrong. For you to take payment. Why does Paul not want to take payment though? It's still, you still have to look at it closely. It's in, um, hold on, let me find it here. Verse 17 and 18. I think he doesn't really, he has a reward. Yep. A dispensation. Well, it says, if I do it against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. Well, like if he's just doing it for the money, or he doesn't want to muddy the waters. He doesn't want because think about it. If somebody were paying you to do something, what do you do? If someone says, "Abby, I want you to rake the leaves in my lawn," and you do what you think is the best job, and then they come out. Take a, look, take a look at it, and they say, you missed a bunch over there. What do you have to do? Have to go get them. Right, because otherwise they won't They're pay you. Kind of yep. Yeah. So, what? back to the mercenary thing. What is our army and Navy, just all the armed forces in the U.S. made up of? Volunteers. Everybody is a volunteer. Now, they get paid, but everyone is a volunteer. Nobody is forced into doing it. We did that once. It wasn't so great, right? There was, people didn't like it. There was challenges. Not to say that you might not have to do it again. There might be times to, but it's certainly better when you don't do it if you don't have to. 
And I think that is where John Winthrop is saying, I would much rather, I do not want to be accountable to you because you're paying me. I want to only be accountable to God. I only want to have to answer to God for what I do for him. I don't want to be controlled by man. So, very unique. Uh, I don't know if anybody ever did that before, with the, certainly with the Church of England. He's unique in the way that he thinks about stuff. Um, so, he is very... Um, after that, he ends up moving to Salem, which is north of... No, yeah. No witches yet. That comes a little later. Um, that is north of Boston, still there today. And he starts um, preaching up there, and they have <clears throat> a bit of um, a community starts to build around him and going to uh, they start a church up there. And Roger Williams is preaching something that most people that are in the Anglican church don't really care for. And he is very concerned about the government, even if it's a really good one, having control or putting their hands into the church and having an influence on it. So he's pre preaching something that you might have heard of before. of separation of church and state mm -hmm. yeah. that's him he pretty much came up with that he, so he's been preaching and he brings it up every once in a while but he also talks about it a lot with other people he likes to debate and discuss things with people and this is one of his big things is this, there should be no official religion of whatever government and the government should have no say over what religion is allowed and what any religion should be allowed, no matter what. And he probably wasn't thinking about at the, when he came up with this about like Buddhism or, well, I mean, that wasn't even something he ever came across, but, you know, other religions. But he did, he was for... If you wanted to be an atheist, you could be an atheist, which was like crazy. Like you were weird if you were an atheist then because nobody was, okay? If you wanted to get anywhere in the government and anything, you were not an atheist because there was the official church. You, you would just kind of be shunned. And he was very much for that individual right of freedom to practice it however you wanted. Naturally, he's a separatist. Um, for, and this is important even today, if I like, for example, our church has never taken money like grants or historical, like money for historical buildings from the government ever because strings are almost always attached when you get help from the government. 
almost always. And might it have helped? Yeah. But in the end, do you want them to have a say? Even if they don't for a really long time. They could later. They could later say something. Or if you come to rely on that money, and then all of a sudden it's not there because they don't want to give it to you. So it's, it's an important thing that still pertains today, even in small ways like that. Well, well, Roger is up in Salem saying all this stuff. The people in Boston are not too happy about it. Not, uh, now, John Winthrop, he was not, he did not agree with Roger on this, on the separation of church and state. But he still liked, they were friends, they debated, they talked about things a lot. But he wasn't trying to get rid of it. But the rest of the, pe- the government in Boston, um, part of this charter, they eventually bring um, um, Roger to court there. And they banish him and are uh, sending his, tell him he has six days to go back, to, to get on a boat to go back to England. They're like, you're out of here. You're, we don't like what you're proposing. Well, um, John Winthrop helps Roger ex- or leave or get out of Boston, and he goes out into the wilderness. And he lives with the Indians for quite a few years. And while he's out there, um, he had previously already started to learn the language. He already knew like Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. And he also learned the Indian language, the locals. So he had, this is kind of a side thing, but tells you more about his character. He had a unique view of the Indians at the time, which was super ahead of his time, that how England just came and took their land and didn't like buy it from them appropriately he thought that was wrong. He thought, and he didn't like how they were being treated already, which is interesting. But he ends up because people in Boston still like him and tolerate him, and the Indians really like him. He ends up being an ambassador and like uh, translating for both parties when they get together. And both of them trust him to tell the truth and not twist it one way or the other. And um, after a while, though, he, <clears throat> along with a few other people, they, they're outcasts from Boston, just unusual people, odd people. They were later called riffraff by some of the locals. And they form what you know now today as the state of Rhode Island. That tiny little state that's down there by Connecticut and Massachusetts. And at first, it's really nothing. It's barely even a settlement. And after a time, it grows. But they are concerned that Boston is still going, because they don't have a charter, they are concerned that Boston is going to uh, be forceful with them, I guess. Make them do what they want and not allow them to have this 
separation of church and state, this religious freedom that they've had. And because he has such good connections back in England with Parliament and the king, he ends up getting a charter from both the king and Parliament to form Rhode Island as its own colony. And after they get that, they are totally um, autonomous. Well, I don't want to say totally autonomous, but as far as from Boston and anyone else, they have um, sanction from the king to be set up like uh, their own government. Now, what's different about their government from even Plymouth or, um, or Boston is that theirs is one where anybody can do any, be a part of any religion. Like in Plymouth, you had to be a separatist. That's what you were if you were part of Plymouth because that's what everybody that came there was a separatist. In Boston, you had to be part of the Anglican Church. That was the only one that was sanctioned. Well, Roger ends up having all sorts of people there because they, um, they can do whatever they want. The government is set up as a democracy and they can vote. But he actually owns all the land. And you might instantly be thinking, well, that doesn't sound very good. And it could have been bad if it was the wrong person. But he, even when eventually Quakers move in, anybody know anything about Quakers? They are, which, which um, Roger does not agree with. He is not a um, pacifist. So he doesn't like that. And he's actually concerned about like the other Indians that are hostile around. He's like, well, you can't just be a pacifist. They'll just come in here and kill us. And he debates with him about it. And he could have, because he owned the land, just said, well, you're out of here. Like, leave. But he doesn't. He sticks to the democracy that he set up. And he allows them to do it. And it actually doesn't work out that Indians do come and, like, take all their stuff despite that. <laughs> but he sticks to the government that he sets up. He found it important that he not put his influence in on it. Um, so he had some really good insight where he knew that a state-run religion would always be corrupted by politics, no matter what. It's always going to be an issue. Let's go to Acts chapter 5, before Corinthians, before Romans. Um, Chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, we're going to look at. And this is, Peter has been imprisoned by, um, I think Peter, along with some, another apostle, they've been imprisoned by the high priests in Jerusalem. This is after Jesus has uh, gone back up to heaven. And... The high priests are putting them on trial. And this is what um, the priests say to him, say to them while they're on trial. And this is Peter's response. Verse 28. Did not we straightly command you that you should 
fulfill Jerusalem and make your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Okay. Everybody heard that before? That quote? Pretty famous quote that Peter says. And he says it in response to the priests because the priests are like, we told you don't ever teach or even say Jesus' name again. We don't want you ever doing that again. And they're the, they're the authority, the religious authority, even um, besides the Roman overlords, they're the governmental authority there too. And Peter says, well, I only answer to God. That's the only person that I answer to in the end of the day. And this is, this is very much how Roger, his attitude about religion was that I only can answer to God and my conscience for what I should do when it comes to serving God. I'm not going to to live at the whim of whatever new ruler or power comes into control that tells me, well, you have to go to church on Sunday at this time and, and say these uh, catechisms and whatever else while you're in church. She said, no, I, I answer to God and what my conscience tells me I should do. And one other thing to tie it back into what we looked at um, last week with the golden rule, right? We have love one another. We got the love God covered, right? That's pretty clear. What about the love of others? Where do we see that in Roger's life? Yeah, he treated them really well. And that real evidence is that they treated him well because they had no reason to trust any white person who came from across the ocean, but they trusted him because of how he treated them first. And not only, what's the other? There's another time. He didn't take people off of the land. Yeah. All right. How he, how he succumbed to whatever everybody else decided within the government there. He didn't say, well, now that you're not really doing exactly what I believe, I'll, I'll just take the reins and I'll fix it. He didn't do that. Um, and let's go to one more spot. Go to the Gospel of John. Turn back a couple books. Chapter 13. This is... Um, this is the famous Last Supper where Jesus is having one last meal before he dies. And when they all come in, they're all, because uh, they live in the desert. Um, everybody been to a beach with sand? Okay, good. What's it like when you come back from the beach? Sand is everywhere. Yes, it's awful. Right? Um, well, they live in a sandy, dry area. So they come in, they come to the upper room, and what was typical was you'd have a servant, if you had a servant, would come through and wash everybody's feet. 
And Jesus, they're all there. There isn't a servant. So Jesus, he grabs the bowl and a towel, and he comes around and washes everyone's feet. Um, verse 14 now. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another. Okay, so Jesus says, if, if you love me, or if you want to follow me, follow my example, then you must be the servant of everyone else. There's another place where he says that if you, which actually you wouldn't want to be if you were a servant, but if you want to be first, you must be last. You must be the servant of all. And Roger had this idea that he said that he thought that a king's attitude should be, should be that he is the servant of the people. I wonder where he got that from. Got that from the king of kings, who is the servant of all. And he thought that you should carry that over, that whoever it is, whether it's a king, a president, a baron, bishop of a church, whatever leadership position that you should say, I'm going to be the leader of all, or the, sorry, the servant of all, if you're going to be the leader. And that was, he certainly acted that out in his life too. It wasn't just this grand idea, but he carried it out. He did it every day. So he knew what he was saying. He knew the cost of what he was saying. And that's probably one of the few things that he did that did not carry into our system very long. You look at George Washington. He was very much a servant of everyone else. So He didn't want to carry on the power he chose to they would have had him be president until he died if he would have taken it but he chose not to and very quickly after that it becomes up until today now most politicians are not in it to serve others they're, that's not why they're there there are ones that are there. There are ones that are good, that do good things. But many of them, it's there for their own selfish reasons. And that's why one of the reasons why we are in a bad situation that we are today is because they're not there to serve the people. And it's until we get back to those things that God has laid out how to live our lives from the littlest level all the way up to top government. It's very simple. It said, love others, love the Lord your God. The way you carry that out is to be a servant of all.
So next week we'll go on and we'll look at another person.